Amen. If you have a Bible, I would like for you to open up to two different places tonight. First, Isaiah chapter 9, and then put a bookmark, if you would, over in John chapter 1. There'll be some other scripture on the screen you'll, I think, uh, enjoy seeing. But we'll uh, begin in just a few minutes reading a couple verses from Isaiah that uh, really capture the promise of Christmas, ones that you're very familiar with, I'm sure. And then we'll turn over to John and, and kind of walk through the Gospel of John and highlight a couple things that I think really punctuate the promise of Christmas. Now, you know, there's a lot of great things about Christmas, um, and I'm sure we could all go around the room and share our favorite things about Christmas. Uh, one of my favorite things is just how, uh, how it dominates, and maybe not really my favorite thing, but what is really impressive about Christmas, um, and really as, as, as secular as it's been made to be and commercialized as, it been, as it's been made to be, it, it all comes back to, to Jesus, right? It all comes back to Christmas. His name is everywhere, regardless of if people know what they're saying and who they're talking about when they say it. Um, uh, his name is everywhere, and, and he is at the heart of this season. And that is really the most impressive thing, and really what I love the most about this season is that it just dominates not just the week that we're entering into and not just the month that we've been a part of, but it just dominates an entire quarter of the year, right? Uh, I mean, wintertime is literally defined by and recognized by Christmas decorations and Christmas um, atmosphere, and, and I mean, no other season, no other block of the year is like that when you think about it, you know? Um, uh, I, I think that it's a wild that, a thing that we don't talk about it enough, um, how um, Christmas really defines an entire section and, and portion of the year, and, and you know, there are decorations that we associate with springtime and summertime and, and all that and fall, but uh, none of those things are tied to a single day or a single event, uh, and, and I, I want us just to, to, to think about that tonight how one single day literally dominates a whole two-month period, and really more than that, uh, but really since, no, since November 1st, right, uh, Christmas Day has dominated all the other days, and, and it's so big that it lingers, right, that, that Christmas just doesn't want to go anywhere, right, and why would you want it to go anywhere? It's so awesome, uh, but even after Christmas is over, into January, it lingers for days and weeks after it's over, and I think Maybe I'm just a product of, 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 of the society that we live in, and I'm, I just give in to the, to, the, to the hype of it all and the commercialization of it all. But really, I think it's, it's something that Christians should be you know, encouraged by. Um, it, Christmas is so big um, that I think it just speaks to the power behind it, that it, that it comes early and it stays for a long, long time. Time. No other day of the year has that kind of power, right? I mean, even Easter, we kind of just, it comes, comes upon us in the spring, and then it moves on, and we're ready for the other things to do outside in all the warm weather. But Christmas, um, we know as soon as uh, fall gets here, hey, it's on the horizon, and it's going to be the main event for all the days to come. So I think that's the reason we're so anxious to prepare for it, and the reason we're so reluctant to move past it, um, because Christmas brings with it a presence that is so joyous and so comforting. And, and again, maybe, maybe sometimes you, you know, you're not feeling it because of your circumstances. But I, I think all of us, you know, if we're Christians, I think we, we, we agree on this. That Christmas and the spirit and all the atmospheric things that comes along with it. Um, Christmas brings with it just a palpable and, 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 a, and, and, and an obvious and apparent 
joy and comfort that is just something that we, we, we love that it's so real and, it, and it's so easy um, to, to feel. Now, the themes that we've talked about for a month now is we've lit the Advent wreath, hope and peace, joy and love. Um, you know, uh, I think that's also the reason why we're so nostalgic for Christmas um, when we talk about memories. When we go around the room or you, family, when you think about family uh, history or family you know, stories, um, a lot of our memories also coincide with Christmas, right? Uh, because I, I think those feelings of Christmas are so strong that we remember them more than we might remember, you know, a birthday here and there or any other holiday here and there, that there's something about Christmas, the feelings and the thought of hope and joy and peace and love that just really leave an impression on our souls. And, and maybe you've never thought about that way before, um, but as I begin to try to prepare for this and think about, you know, what, why, why are there certain things about Christmas that just stick around and why do we remember so much about Christmas more than we remember anything else? Um, I think there's got to be a connection between the supernatural element of it all uh, and, and how it just really leaves that kind of an impact and that kind of a footprint. You know, we could go all around the room and we could probably share Christmas memories of simple things, gathering around a table, sitting in the living room, taking a trip with, the, with family members uh, to, to some event or going to family uh, members' homes. Um, and I think more than any other season, we, we might not remember it about any other time of year, but we remember it. Uh, about Christmas. Now, something about Christmas takes normal experiences and elevates them. Christmas takes the mundane and makes it special. Um, something about Christmas just hits differently. Uh, and maybe my favorite thing about Christmas and, uh, is all the Christmas-sized things that come along with the season. And again, I know this is just, you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, product of America and all that, that it's done, and not everything that it's done about the season is good. But I just love that, you know, Christmas has just, you know, in, filtered through everything uh, from uh, decorations, songs, books, shows, movies, right? I mean, Christmas doesn't just, you know, it isn't just a little section of the store like some holidays. Christmas is the store. Right, Christmas is um, the entertainment industry this time of year, and I think that's a pretty big deal, right? That it all started with a baby in a manger, and somehow, some way, and you know, you can push your glasses up and say, "Well, technically, the Romans did this, and it was another holiday." I, I don't care about all that. Clearly, something got a hold of the world uh, and changed everything, and it all goes back to Jesus. I think there's something to that, don't you? Um, you know, I'm sure everybody here has a favorite song that you like to play or sing along with. Um, I, I think all of us have a favorite Christmas special. And, you know, I think it's, it's my favorite thing about Christmas time is the Christmas uh, holiday special of a sitcom or cartoon, right? Every, every show seemed to have a Christmas special. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of Christmas movies. Uh, that uh, I think all of us probably have a, a favorite two or three. And, and we could go, and this isn't the sermon, but I'm going to waste a little bit of time because uh, why not? Um, I don't think it's a waste. I think we'll enjoy it. Uh, I, I could talk an hour or so about uh, all the different Christmas movies, and, and there's a lot of them, right? Uh, you know, maybe you're, uh, you, you, you have some more class than, than me because you'll probably like some, uh, some of the classics. Um, like It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street, like the original one. You know, those are some classics that have been around for 70, 80 years, right? And, and people have been, uh, that's one of the earliest uh, examples of Hollywood realizing, hey, we can really make an impact with, with this Christmas thing. And, and people really resonate, it really resonates with people. Um, and, and if you grew up in the last few decades, like, like myself, um, there's, there's newer favorites, you know, The Christmas Vacation and, and Home Alone. And there's, you know, several Home Alone movies. We've got the Santa Claus movies and, and so many others um, that if, if you grew up in the, 
the 80s and 90s, there's just so many Christmas movies. And, and I think one thing about Christmas uh, is that Christmas has a way of kind of, uh, of kind of taking over movies that aren't really Christmas movies, but they take place during Christmas, right? Um, and, and this was kind of a thing in the 80s, and some of y'all probably remember um, Die Hard and, and Lethal Weapon, right? Those are not Christmas movies at all, but they take place during Christmas, right? And that's, I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Also, Gremlins, I, I like Gremlins. This is a little bit of a creepy movie if, if, you, if, you've ever, if you haven't seen it. Um, kind of scary, too. It, it, those, little, those little guys will uh, keep you up at night. But again, they're not Christmas movies, but they take place during Christmas, and, and no other holiday has that kind of an impact and has that kind of uh, uh, effect on um, entertainment. Of course, the last few decades, the newer favorites like Elf and, and the Polar Express, uh, we all love those, but uh, my favorites, my favorites, it's always tough to pick because I think all these are great. Um, my, my favorites um, didn't start as Christmas movies, but they actually started out as books, uh, and uh, you probably can, can figure out what those are, but um, my favorite Christmas stories from the books that inspired the movies that we all know and love are The Christmas Carol, and, and yeah, my favorite is the Disney version, because Scrooge is Scrooge McDuck, right? Uh, but there's other versions. There's, there's, uh, uh, the, there's a Muppet version. That's pretty good, and there's you know more real-life mature versions as well, uh, but uh, The Christmas Carol, uh, of, of course, about Scrooge. Scrooge, the, the man, and, and, and which Charles Dickens wrote the book, The Christmas Carol, back in the 1800s, uh, a, a classic. And, and of course, there's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which has been, uh, which was a book, and then it became a cartoon, it became a movie, and another movie or two. Uh, now, I, I know I'm a child at heart, so uh, it, you probably could have expected these to be on, on the top of my list. But, you know, any version of The Grinch is good, but I like the classic because you can hear the narrator kind of talk about all the, the Whovilles, uh, all the things going on in Whoville and all the rhymes. I think that's pretty, pretty neat and memorable. Um, but what is most striking about these two to me um, is the stories about these particularly awful people, right? And, and I know the Grinch isn't really a person, but you know what I mean. Uh, but these two awful, rotten, no good people um, uh, between the Grinch and Scrooge um, and how the stories, and again, I know they're fiction, but the stories prove something about Christmas that you and I know is real, We've experienced it. It proves how inescapable the Christmas spirit inevitably is, even on those who were so far away from what was righteous and what was good. I mean, right, we watch the Grinch, and this guy is an awful, awful creature, yet somehow, somewhat, Christmas gets to him. And we watch the, the, the Christmas carol, and, and Scrooge is just ruthless, yet somehow, Christmas gets to him. And I think there's something about the Christmas story that just is so rich and so powerful. It appeals to us. And we see these play out and we think, yeah, that, that's Christmas. At least that's how it works for me. Um, uh, maybe in a much broader way, Christmas explains why I am so idealistic. And I know people might say that's naive, and, and, and that's fine. I'd rather be called naive than, than something worse, like bitter or cynical. Um, but I, I kind of, I think a lot of my idealism and a lot of my optimism, my resilience to believe the best about people and my reluctancy to give into and assume the worst about people, um, because Christmas reminds me, Christmas reminds me, and, and again, it's more than just fiction, Christmas reminds me that no matter how far someone may seem away, nobody is too far away. Nobody is too far away from God. That's the message of Christmas, isn't it? That's the story of Christmas. That's the Christmas story that you and I all have experienced because Christmas tells the story of how God came all this way to save us, to save all of us. You know, it's so easy. It's so easy to be cynical in this world, isn't it? 
I, I get it. There's a lot of bad things that happen, a lot of bad, seemingly bad people, a lot of evil things. There's a lot of groups of people, cultures that are just inundated with evil and sin and darkness. Uh, it's very easy to become so riled up and because of politics and our social beliefs. It's easy to read people and, and expect certain things or expect the worst from people. I get it. Even people that sing, you know, the Christmas carols on Sunday, we get into the real world Monday through Saturday right after Christmas is over, and we're back to, you know, kind of that, uh, you know, seeing the worst in people and believing the worst about people, and maybe you just say, I'm a realist, but come on, there's something about us that often assumes the worst and is very cynical and very kind of, you know, uh, easily to, to, to get negative, um, but, but I think a fresh understanding of Christmas, and, and, and this is something that happened to me about, about a decade ago. A fresh understanding of Christmas that, that I went through and that I obtained a few years ago um, emboldened me to refuse to become that way, to refuse to see the world the way the devil wants me to see the world, the way so many, even Christians, see the world. Um, you know, maybe one day we'll get to heaven and God will say to me, Justin, you were so foolish in believing the best about people. You were so foolish being so naive and giving people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you, you were so evil, so foolish believing that people that are, are just outright evil, you're so foolish believing that they might could change. But, but I really doubt that's going to happen, right? And I haven't been there to have that told to me, but I'm really doubtful that God's going to say that to me because Christmas, Christmas happened 2,000 years ago. So the reason why I believe that God's not going to say to us, why would you be so optimistic? Why would you have so much confidence? Why would you uh, be so idealistic? And why would you have so much optimism? The reason why I believe that's, that, 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 that God actually uh, encourages us to have that kind of attitude um, is because 2,000 years ago, Christmas happened. And it happens every year. To remind us that we all were so far, far away from God and we would never have got to him if not for Jesus coming to get us. Do you hear that? That every year Christmas reminds us that we were all so far away from God, right? And you might have not been a Scrooge or you might not have been a Grinch, but you were somebody who was far away from God. And Christmas reminds you, even you, that you and I were so far away from God. And that the only way we were going to get back to God was Him coming to get us. You know, so often the Christian conversation we all get into... Um, we so quickly and easily assume that we've always been righteous and we've had a superior right beliefs and we've behaved the right way. And, and maybe such things were passed from generation to generation in your family from, from back uh, from years. But if you go back far enough, there was somebody who was far away from God. And come on, we may have inherited a worldview and we may be ingrained with one, but that didn't save us. We were all born far from God. And if not for his grace, we would all be so very lost, so very hopeless. And so very un full of unrest. Now, we'd all be clinging to this world for the things that, uh, that, that, that we can only find in Jesus. Uh, like the Grinch who embodies all the nasty things about people to the point that he wanted to ruin Christmas for everybody else. That spite and that hatefulness, it's in all of us, isn't it? Even after we're saved. We might not want to ruin Christmas, but something in us springs up when somebody else has a bad day. And we say things like, well, oh, I, they had that coming. I mean... If they just wouldn't have been as bad, they wouldn't have a bad day. Christmas begs a different story, though. Christmas begs to tell a different story. Because Christmas means that, that, that we have received exactly what we don't deserve. 
Right? Christmas means that all of us have received what we don't deserve. The grace and mercy of God. None of us, none of us get what we deserved. If we did, we wouldn't be here. And maybe that's why the story of Scrooge appeals to me even more. Because on the, on the surface, Scrooge looks like an honorable man. He worked hard. He doesn't see the need to share stuff with people that the things he earned for himself, why would he do that? Why don't they just work harder? Why don't, they, why don't the homeless just get a job, right? Why don't the, the low and despondent just pull the bootstraps up and, and earn an honest living? Why don't the weak just get stronger out of sheer will, right? I mean, Scrooge did. Why don't everybody else? But, but what did Scrooge learn in the story? That he wasn't always so selfish and so greedy, but he allowed his stuff to become more important than the others, than others and, and, and so much that he forgot where his blessing came from. Christmas reminds us all that God didn't stand back in heaven and say, why don't you fix yourself? Why don't you just follow the law? I mean, if you didn't break the law, you wouldn't be in a mess. You'd be where I am. Right? That, that's not what God said, is it? God didn't stand in the clouds and tap his foot and say, well, I mean, I've given them the law. Why don't they just do better? And he would have been exactly right had he said that. And he would have had an empty, an empty heaven full of angels worshiping him, and he wouldn't be no, no less God had he said that. But that's not what he said, is it? God saw us in our sin. He knew that we needed to save your church. Church, the reason, why, the reason for this whole little preamble, let us never forget that we need a Savior. And that God didn't stand in heaven and say, why don't they just fix themselves? I've given them all they need. God said, you know what? It's going to take me rolling my sleeves up and going to fix them for them because they, they can't do it. They can't. We have met him because he came down to us. And, and, and may we who have met him, may we remain with him and share him with others. And for those who haven't met him yet, let us never get in the way of God's grace that he wants to give to them. And maybe we're the grace that he wants to share with them. And it's so important that we remember that Christmas is the opportunity that got us to God and that can get so many to God. You know, Christmas, and, and this is such a, I think, really powerful point that, that God helped me get to. Christmas is the day that God forever erred on the side of grace. And that's why I'll always, you know, there, it's, it's hard sometimes to always err on grace because sometimes you want to err on law and law is black and white. And hey, I, I, you know, hey, I got to put the hammer down. But Christmas is the day that God erred on the side of grace he didn't worry if we went too far, if he had went too far. He didn't think, well, maybe I've given too much. <laughs> because he once, once he put the skin on, there was no undoing it, right? God never thought to himself, maybe I've went too far. Maybe I've given too much. Maybe I've done too much. Maybe I've been too gracious. No, no, no. He never thought that. He poured out all that he had. Folks, that's the heart of Christmas. That's why we can have such comfort and joy today and every day. Because if Christmas did one thing, if somebody says, hey, what's, the, what's, what's Christmas in a sentence? Christmas forever settled on earth what the God of heaven was like. Christmas forever settled on earth what the God of heaven is like. Christmas put on display exactly what God is like. To some religious people, Christmas is too much. Such extravagant grace, or such grace is so extravagant because... They themselves rely on themselves. But those of us who know ourselves and know our sin, Christmas is everything to us. Because we know that we would be helpless and hopeless without Christmas. Because without Christmas, we would be godless. Now, listen, 
not that Christmas is the reason there's a God. No, again, God didn't have to come to do what he did for him to, to prove himself to be real. He didn't need to do that. But there was no way for him, no way to him, and there was no way we were ever going to know him if not for what he did on Christmas. I mean, have you read the Old Testament? There's a lot of God in the Old Testament. He's very real, and he didn't need Christmas to prove himself to be real. There was plenty of God. He was very real, and he meant, a lot of, he meant business. Now, there's plenty of people who should have known him, but all of them lived pretty ungodly lives, didn't they? No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't get to him. They had the law, they had the Sabbath, they had the prophets, yet they did not have God. They could not get to him no matter how hard they tried. Listen, God would have been right to judge them and by all extension judge us, but he chose not to. He promised he would do more, and even though he wasn't on him to fix the mess, it was not his fault, it was ours, he took it on himself to do what we could not do for ourselves. And that tells us, that tells us there was more to God than can ever be observed in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, where he was so far above people and people were so far below him. There was more to God than the eye could perceive or flesh could understand. So God decided to lower himself to our level, to base himself to our species, that we might know his heart and we might have him in our hearts. So we would no longer be godless, but that we would have God with us. The famous passage, Isaiah 9, I want to look at two verses that, that really emphasize uh, the godlessness apart from Christmas, as in the absence of God in our lives, and, and then the, the presence of God because of Christmas. Isaiah 9, 1, it, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What's the great light? The great light is Christmas. Okay? Just spoil it. So we were in darkness without the great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. Does it get any worse than that, right? Where are you living? I'm living in death. That means you're destined to die. You're destined to be judged. You're destined to be condemned. No matter how righteous you may feel like you are, all the laws, all the commandments, all the traditions, all the Sabbaths, all the rituals, none of that is going to get you out of the jaws of death. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. What is a light? The light is Christmas. And in verse 6 tells us the Christmas story. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, as in we have no foundation, no leg to stand on apart from Jesus. And then, it, and then he tells us a few things about Jesus, about the Savior. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it tells us the Son is going to reveal the Father. Is that clear? The Son, the child, is going to reveal the God who they have been trying to get to in the Old Testament, but it was so dark they couldn't see him. He will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is God made manifest to those who sat in darkness. So here's what this little passage tells us. It, it, you hear this all the time, but here's kind of the summary of it. There's no light without Christmas. There's no firm foundation apart from Christ. Christmas is our comfort and it's our joy because Christmas displays God so clearly, so purely, and so wonderfully. 
So why did God come the way that he did? He entered the world just like us so that we knew, we would know he meant business. That he really loved us so much that he became one of us and walked in our shoes. He put on our flesh so that he'd have the same propensity to struggle and feel pressure and pain in more ways than anybody expected. He became one of us so that we would know that he loved us. And again, more importantly, so that we would have zero confusion as to what he was like. Jesus. Jesus is the forever eternal record of what God is like and his thoughts toward us. If anybody quotes the Bible to describe God in such a way that moves our eyes away from Jesus, they're doing it wrong. But Jesus is the center. He is the compass. Jesus came so that he would forever set the record straight. This is what God is like. His heart beats to bring comfort and joy to his people why, who are so full of hurt and suffering and distress and sin. When Jesus first came on the scene in, in his ministry, uh, 30 years after he was born, uh, we don't know much about his life before. He lived in obscurity. He lived like most of us, grinding away each day, doing his best against the negative uh, gravity of the world and pressure of the world. But of course, when he first came on the scene, he went to see John the Baptist. He, he joined John's movement. Then he went to his synagogue and announced his own personal ministry. And he claimed that he was ushering in a new era, a new, a new dawn. Uh, the kingdom of God was going to be open to people through him. And people thought he was crazy. Even his family. Isn't this the carpenter? Wasn't this the man who, when he was born, there was questionable things about his mom? And didn't they have to go to Egypt for a few years because they were on the run, the scandal or whatever? I mean, who is this guy? Can we trust him? What does he mean, the kingdom of God? Now, Jesus talked a big game, but maybe he was just a little uh, too hyped about John the Baptist, uh, who, uh, whose own talk of God's kingdom seemed much to do about nothing. Until Jesus started traveling from town to town, and while his sermons were a little strange, his actions were wild. He was healing people and doing all kinds of miracles to people. The religious weren't too impressed because he was doing things for people they didn't consider to be anywhere near God, worthy of God. But the people they had turned away, Jesus accepted with open arms. And here's the beautiful thing about that, about that whole story is they felt seen and heard and loved by Jesus. And in turn, they walked away and they thought, it's like we've been around God. I mean, I know he's just a carpenter and he's just a miracle worker and we don't know what he's doing and how he's doing it. But it's almost like if there's a God, we hope he's like him. Because, wow, he makes us feel loved. He makes us feel accepted. I wonder if that's what God is really like. And, and that's the whole point of Jesus' ministry. He put on display the fullness, the complete picture of God. Every picture apart from Jesus is incomplete. It's just an angle. It's like when Moses, after receiving the law and the revelation on Mount Sinai, God took him to the summit and did something nobody ever talks about. Remember, he received Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the moral, all the law, the code, all the, the, the sacrificial uh, instructions. He received the history in Genesis. And, and then God did this little exercise with Moses. Uh, Moses had to stand in a narrow opening of a cave, the cleft of the rock. He had to stand in this little narrow opening where he could see out just a little bit where the daylight shined through. And God said, Moses, I want you to stand there because I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you what you've what I've revealed to you through the word and through the, through the, the law, I'm going to show you how much you've actually seen of me. 
I'm going to give you a picture of what I've given you, given you right etched in stone. I'm going to show you how much of me you've actually experienced. And Moses is thinking, wow, I'm about to see God. Nobody's ever going to believe this. But man, when I walk off this mountain, I'm going to be just you know, glowing with the glory. And people are going to be obvious. It's obvious that, that I've encountered the one and only God. God told Moses, I'm going to make my glory pass by. The glory as was revealed in the law and as he was able to receive it, we find out was limited. God said, Moses, you got to go back in the cave. Well, what do I got to go in the cave for? Because you only have seen a little bit of me. I've only given you a little bit of the story. And I'm only going to show you a little bit of my glory. See, we think the law in the Old Testament is this hardcore, intense, you know, the, the real revelation of God. But, but God told Moses, listen, I'm just using kids' gloves, which is why it's so strict. Because a relationship with God under the Old Covenant uh, w- was built off rituals and works and was mostly on our efforts, and, and we would always come up short. That's why there were so many stipulations, because we were never going to get close to God, and he had to keep us a little bit away lest we get too close and, and not live. Exodus 33 tells us this, that that the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft or in the the cave, and I will cover you with my hand. So not only are you going to see through the crack, but I'm going to have to put my hand over it because you can't see everything, Moses, until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back or the backside of my glory. But my face... You shall not see. And again, we take that as all God. Moses couldn't contain the glory of God. But this is God telling Moses, Moses, I'm working on the front. I'm working on the front of the painting. But right now, you can only see the back. When Moses left the summit, he had to wear a veil. Some thought because his face was too bright. But actually, it was because his glimpse was so finite. And what he actually received was so fleeting. he He didn't want people to think that he only saw such a limited view of God. So he put a veil over his face. He, he was trying to impress people, but the, the Bible actually tells us that he wasn't fooling anybody. When he comes off the mountain, he's trying to impress people. Oh, I've seen the fullness of God, but he hadn't seen anything. It wasn't an indictment on Moses, but rather it was to point toward a greater revelation to come. As it stood, the old covenant was just the backside of God's glory. He was still in darkness. And come on, you know what? What's distinct about the back of something? The back of a shirt, the back of a chair, the back of a car, uh, the back of a greeting card? It's usually just blank. I want you to listen how the Apostle Paul translates that story. In my presentation of the story, it might seem off to what you've heard before, but, but that's because maybe you've only heard it through the lens of the Old Testament. I, I'm bringing it to, to you through the lens of the New Testament, through Jesus. Listen to how Paul compares what we have in Jesus compared to what they had through religion. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would have to put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Oh, because that that little glimpse of glory he saw, it was fleeting. It was passing by. It was nothing. But their minds were hardened to this day when they they read the Old Covenant. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. As in we are still seen through a little crack, a little cleft apart from Jesus. 
That's how big of a deal Jesus is, right? He goes on to say, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face have behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So Jesus, you hear what Paul is saying? That Jesus is the full and only expression of God where actual transformation is found. That any other revelation from the Old Testament or any extra biblical source, oh, this is what God is like, I know what God is like. If it's not Jesus, don't listen to him. If it's not interpreted through Jesus, don't listen to him. Christmas makes it very clear this is what God is like because this is who God sent to reveal himself. Any other revelation is just a little crack through the rock. I wouldn't trust that. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, that includes you and me. So Jesus is the image of an otherwise invisible God. That's why Christmas is important. Because Christmas gives us God as he wants us to know him. To wrap up, I want to look at a couple of verses in John and, and we'll, we'll, we'll close. Flip over to John 1 and I want to read a very familiar passage. John references Moses in this passage, again, contrasting what they had before and what they have now. John 1, verse 14 through 18, listen to how John tells the Christmas story, a little bit differently than Matthew, Mark, Matthew and Luke do, does, but, but still as important. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have received grace for grace. And I love this verse. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. That's the and I'll be all full revelation of God. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. But, but I thought Moses saw God. John's saying, you, you're going you're gonna to count that as seeing God? Just seeing through a crowd? Nah. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. The only begotten son who is in the bosom or from the heart of the father, he has declared him, he has made him known. So what is John telling us here? That the the way to know God is only possible through Christmas. When God put skin on and came to dwell alongside of us. John tells the story of how Jesus would go on to demonstrate God to people. But he narrows in on his message when he gets to John 13 and 14, which is, records the conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night before he died. But up to this point, there was still a lot of questions as to who Jesus was and how he fit into the story the Jews already had. Not that he made things ambiguous, but they just didn't listen with open ears. But over in John 13, 1, a verse that we've read a lot here, if you look at this, I want you to notice something that that verse tells us. This is John editorializing what Jesus was about to do for his disciples. 
John 13, 1 says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, that he would depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That word end there is the Greek word telos, which means the fullness or completion to the very end of the spectrum. So you can almost rephrase that verse as he showed them the full extent of his love. So what did Jesus do right after this? That this is why he came, to reveal the Father, to reveal God in clear and plain terms. And what does Jesus do after this? He gets up from supper, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps a servant tail around his waist, he gets on his knees, and he washes their feet. Right? He washed their feet, even Judas' feet. Which tells me that Judas' steer conscience was not to be the rule, but the exception. As in Jesus served Judas, even though he knew he wouldn't change. So we should serve in love, believing that it's possible any Scrooge or Grinch can change. That's how powerful Christmas is. Because that's the promise of Christmas. As God becomes one of us, pours himself out for us, lowers himself beneath us, so that we might be raised up to God. As Jesus wrapped up this conversation and signaled them that things were going to go differently than he expected, he had some real talk with them in John 14. And y'all know this passage very well, but look with me. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. You see what he's saying? You want to know who God is? Look at me. I've made him known to you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know the way. You know, and the way you know. But Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And we, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, guys, is it not clear? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to God except through me. As in, there has been no revelation of God except for me. And he says, if you know me, you would know my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, come on, quit with the riddles, Jesus. Just show us the father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you, do you see that? I mean, if that's not underlined and highlighted in your Bible, it should be. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So what is God like? Jesus is the answer. Jesus made God fully known so that we might be fully loved and that we might wholly belong to God. Let me ask you, is that what Christmas means to you? Is that what Christmas makes you think about? It should, and it can. Because of Christmas, we never have to wonder what God is like or what God thinks about what about what God thinks about when he thinks about us because Jesus put it on display. Jesus put it clear and simple and plain. God is, Jesus is God made man. Jesus is God in full. Jesus is God's love. And, and John, who heard all this and wrote all this, he would write his own letter years later and add this. Anyone who does not love does not love God because God is love. I mean, John, are you really going to make that declarative of a statement? Not, not that God loves people, but that God is love. He said, listen, I spent three years with Jesus. If God is anything, he's love. 
In this was love made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world. I mean, is it any clearer? So what, why is Christmas so important? Because it makes it clear to us, this is what God is like. This is what God can do for you. And this is who we should tell the world God is. And make sure that we always bring it through Jesus because Christmas makes it all about Jesus. Jesus is God's love, fleshed out for us, poured out into us. Is it simple enough? Jesus is God's love. He is God, fleshed out so that we can see, poured out, literally, so that we might receive. That's what Christmas is all about, so that you might know all about God and receive all of God into your heart. All of his comfort, all of his joy, all of his love. If you find yourself like Philip, you want to see God or know God, look no further than the Christmas story. If you talk to somebody and they say, I just don't know who God is. I don't, you know, I've read the law, I've read the Old Testament, I've read all this other stuff religion says. Let's say, whoa, 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 whoa. Can I just tell you about Jesus? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, that's enough. I'll make sense of the rest of it. Jesus reminds us that God loves us, that he has made room for us in his story, and that he has made room for us in his family, and it asks us the question, have you made room for him? Why wouldn't you? I mean, even the Grinch did, right? Even Scrooge did. Why wouldn't we? Especially when you know just how transformative it can be. What God has done. He has made known to us who he is, what he's like, what he thinks about when he thinks about you. And it's good things. Favored from on high. He loves you. And he'll never stop. Christmas is proof. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Let me pray for y'all and we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the good news of Christmas. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Lord, thank you that you made it clear once and for all if we want to know what God is like we just got to look at Jesus and, and yeah the Bible's big and there's a lot in there that we should read and all if it's inspired but it all goes through Jesus Jesus is the fullness of God he is the picture of God he is the visible image of God he is the God made flesh he is God made manifest he is God's love poured out Christmas is the reason we know who God is Christmas is the reason why we get to know God because God came to get us, to know us, to love us, to save us, and to make us feel right at home. Father, we love you. We thank you. May we give you this week to worship you and honor you and exalt you. And may we tell the world about the Savior who was born, who put God on display. And may nobody ever tell another story about God that doesn't say, look at the Savior. That's who God is. That's how God loves. And my life is proof. I once was lost, but he found me. And he saved me. And he can anybody else. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.